Hello, Sopranos podcast fans. Thank you for joining us today. Before we get to the main episode, I did just want to mention real fast, I'm an actor and a storyteller. I have a lot of other pursuits outside of this podcast. One of them, I have a little crowdfunder going for right now. It's a project called The Information War. I wrote it and acted in it as a part of the 2018 New York City International Fringe Festival. It was a one-act play. It was very well received and had a successful run at the festival. The Sopranos podcast's own Paul Mancini, in fact, was the director of that version and will definitely be involved creatively on this next iteration as well. However, that was live theater. I'm looking to adapt it for the screen. But, as many of you other artists out there will know, adapting something for the screen takes quite a budget. We were hit pretty hard by the COVID-19 pandemic, and I could really use your contribution if you can spare it right now. Please check it out. I'm going to post the link down below the podcast in the description so you can get there. Or if you're feeling industrious and want to explore, go to Indiegogo.com and search for The Information War. It's a silly, dark satire about radio show host and conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. It's pretty dark and pretty wild. One audience member actually described it as feeling like a 90-minute episode of South Park. Except now we're going to adapt it into a 10-episode web series. So please check that out. Contribute what you can. We have some great perks for contributors, ranging from cool merchandise to personalized thank yous and even a speaking role in the show, as well as producer and executive producer credits. There's some really cool stuff there. Check it out. Once again, that's Indiegogo.com, and you're going to search for The Information War, or just go down into the description of this episode and click it. Thank you so much for your support, and please enjoy this episode of The Sopranos Podcast. Welcome back to The Sopranos Podcast. Today, episode eight, Cowboy-itis. I don't know, Tony. It's like just the regularness of life is too fucking hard for me or something. I, I don't know. That line was uttered in a powerful conversation by Chris Moltisanti to his uncle, Tony Soprano, in season one, episode eight, The Legend of Tennessee Moltisanti. This episode was written by Frank Renzulli and David Chase and directed by Tim Van Patten. Chris searches for his arc and indictments are looming over the Soprano family. Boys, welcome to the podcast. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And here we go. This is a, this is a great episode here. I know we basically say that about every episode, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. This is where we're at. This is... Uh, Heart of the Sopranos, as far as I'm concerned, that I'm a big Chris Moltisanti fan, so this episode, uh, it did it for me. What were your first reactions to this episode? My first reaction had to do with the themes overall, and I'm going to point to a couple of things, and I think it will get us moving. The first is definitely image and identity. The characters searching, struggling in terms of their identity, and a lot of this has to do with the way that our image and identity is refracted through media. Did mm. you guys notice this? Not only that there's so many cultural references, The Godfather and Goodfellas coming in for a lot of fun references, but also we see how quickly and in terms of wide range, the media impacts all the characters because once the news is on, there's a wonderful sequence when the news is cutting between all the different people, including Melfi, who's watching the indictments and that will affect the world. And that sense of the media overwhelming us mm. is big in this episode, I think, for very deliberate reasons. Media affecting self-image. I mean, God, how does that hold relevance in 2020? Uh, exactly. if, if only that was still relevant today. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Continue, Paul. Well, I, the other two things I want to say really quickly is this episode does shift focus a bit. It's ambitious in terms of who we're following. I don't think up to this point any episode has moved away from Tony as much as this one does. Mm. Christopher and Melfi both have their own storylines that aren't necessarily independent of Tony, but it has them exploring something more in their own world from their own perspective brought on by these indictments. The other quick note I would just want to give a shout out to the ambition and creativity of the show. This 
episode early on in The Sopranos canon shows us how ambitious this show was because other shows never would or could do an episode like this. Breaking Bad never did an episode where federal indictments came down and then the characters struggled with these sometimes ethereal questions. That doesn't happen in those shows. The tension mounts and mounts and mounts and mounts. Here, there is tension, but then there's a scene where Christopher has to go get Shoyadel for the guys, let's have dinner, let's talk some of these things over, and you're making a bet, I think, on the writing and the acting and the production value that the audience is going to come along with you. The result is this episode, and I think the bet really pays off. So that's my take on it overall, and I really want to hear from you guys on what you specifically image and identity here. Wow. Paul, that's a, such a beautiful uh, lead-off and hard to follow. Um, I'm just going to say that up until this point in the show, uh, continuing through this episode, we've we've primarily been with Tony and following his wants, needs, desires, thoughts, uh, etc. And undoubtedly, therapy is the nucleus of The Sopranos. But I think now in this episode, The Legend of Tennessee Moltisanti, we're starting to see everything that is in the orbit of therapy. So if Tony and Melfi are sort of in the middle, we are now kind of seeing all these passing projections of things that are happening around them and how they affect every outer layer and inner layer of kind of Tony's, shall we call it, solar system, galaxy, um, the universe of his life. And for Christopher, Christopher has just been to this point a supporting character. He is now about to take the stage as a lead supporting character, as someone we should start paying attention to. And this episode certainly gives us a reason why. Yeah, absolutely. Chris is, uh, I've made no secret about this so far, Chris is one of my favorite characters. And this kicks off, in many ways, his journey in The Sopranos in some very interesting and, and fun ways. This episode, to me, very much in line with everything you guys just said. The Legend of Tennessee Moltisanti, the title, it also speaks in some way to the legend of the American gangster. And how these characters see themselves in relation to that. These guys have a story that they tell themselves and then tell the world, going back a little bit to our Contradictions episode. One of the most poignant scenes, and I think a key scene in this episode, is Tony and Chris in the car. And what really struck me was that both of these guys are projecting the image, the legend of the gangster to each other, but they both have this private turmoil going on. Tony can't admit to Chris that he's a, quote, mental midget. He has to mask it with the legend of the boss and, and be the boss that Chris needs and what he thinks a good boss is instead of being an uncle to Chris when he needs one. Sure, and let's deconstruct the title a little bit. The Legend of Tennessee Moltisanti. I mean, what are legends? Legends are stories that are told over and over again until they become a kind of a truth. Um, mm -hmm. What you said about the stories that we tell each other and therefore tell ourselves, um, there's powerful knowing and just power in and of itself in telling these stories. So Chris's obsession with his own self-image here is in trying to live up to what he thinks a gangster is. Certainly his father, whose name is never spoken in this episode, but certainly looms large in the episode, Chris is trying to live up to a kind of a legacy set by Dickie Moltisanti, but also to an example set by Tony, who's someone he deeply admires. He wants to be a somebody. He's kind of tired of walking into the bada bing and being the guy that has to sweep for bugs and pick up pastries and do all the shit that nobody else wants to do, even though that's his job. And he is still uh, pretty sore that he never really got his due credit for killing Emil Kolar, this guy who is now haunting his dreams, as we see in the beginning of the episode. So he's kind of like looking for like, well, when does my legend start? When, is this my tale? When's it going to be my time? You know, that's, yeah. that's kind of what he's asking here. Absolutely. Paul, any thoughts on... Well, you mentioned it, Jordan. Why don't we dig in starting there? Because uh, it seems like we're talking about Christopher, and this seems to me to be the A-plot of the episode, is Chris in search of his arc. Uh, so let's t let's start with the dream. We start this episode in an incredibly haunting and, and really visually striking way with this crazy dream Chris has set at Satriales, where, of course, he murdered Emil Kolar in the yeah. first episode. What do we think of this dream? This is uh, not the first dream in the show, but this is the first non-Tony dream. It's not the last time we get a non-Tony dream in the show, but it's interesting here. We're getting kind of a glimpse into what is haunting Chris. What do you think of this dream here, Paul? Meadowlands episode four started with Tony having a dream, and similarly, I, this dream, though it's from Chris's perspective, starts off fairly normal, and the, the scenarios become increasingly strange and unrealistic. Mm. Given that, as Jordan was saying, Christopher up to this point has been mostly a supporting character, and for actually a number of episodes, he has been either only a plot 
point or not present at all. Now we're diving right back into his world. A dream is a great way to get right back into what is owning a character, what's mm. waking them up in the middle of the night. Great writing, too, that you don't need too much space. With one line, they do it. At one point in the dream, Kolar is confronting Chris, you killed me. I believe Chris's response is, what do you want me to do about it now? You come here every night. With that one line, we now know not only is this bothering Chris, it's been haunting him probably for a while, mm. in the, for the months since the murder took place. And what you guys said about the way these legends operate is so on point. To me, in that dream... The images are uh, almost too much. It's inundating, and it's powerful, it's funny, it's weird. Something that stuck with me is in the first shot, Chris is sitting there with the espresso, and there's a shot of the pigs. I want to talk a lot about yeah, pigs. Yeah, piglets feeding at a, at a, a sow, yeah. Piglets feeding at a... Uh, sow, rather, yeah. And then they run off. That's an arc. Mm. That's a story. It's a life cycle, but as Jordan pointed out, Chris is feeling in this life cycle like he's a spoke in a wheel. He doesn't matter. It's a grim mm. kind of reality. The episode is filled with this imagery. Polly at one point comes into Christopher's apartments. This place looks like a sty. Well, it, and there's there, it's all over the place, Paul. This this pig thing. I don't want to say it's a it's a motif that keeps popping. Up, like you said, the sty. It's like Christopher's physical space manifests his anxiety. Relating to what's going on at Satrials, it's a pork store. When he shoots Emil Kolar in the first episode, he looks to his left, he's being stared at by a pig. Email says in the dream, change my meat to Black Forest, which is a creepy term to have in a dark dream, Black Forest. But that's not an accident, because what's the alternative? Boar's head. Feds, the looming indictments, feds are pigs. Right. Mm. This is this is throughout the entire episode, and and uh, that just struck me like a ton of bricks when I was watching it again. Is this pig thing throughout the? Uh... Yes, it's definitely rich imagery. Another thought that I had just briefly was when Kolar, in zombie form, says, "Change my meat to Black Forest." Is that the first hint that Chris is going to start thinking of moving the body mm. to another space? In broad fucking daylight, by the way, <laughs> uh, to the woods, to the pine barrens, which kind of echoes this idea of the Black Forest which is the place where you bury the bodies, where no one goes, the Pine Barrens. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, very interesting imagery, uh, very striking imagery. Um, I love the pig motif. Uh, Czech Republic, too, we love pork. Yeah, <laughs> our sausages. Um, interesting, uh, Chris, I thought it was also another interesting little moment in the um, dream where we get Adriana eating a sausage. It's very clearly a phallic symbol. She's on her knees. She's dressed all kind of virginal, and she changes into Carmela. I just thought that what I made of that uh, is that Chris is wrestling with issues of his own masculinity, which is tied up in the gangster identity, but also he's questioning. He he has this call to this movie thing, right? He wants to be a writer. He's he's tantalized by the movie business, and he's wonder. I think there's a part of him that's like. The, his future is to, is as a gangster is to, is what Tony is, and so Adriana kind of turning into Carmela halfway through that sequence is like sure is he projecting like this is my future if I stick with Tony? Kind sure. Of, you know. This is also a very ugly dream. Yes. Uh, I mean it's it's unpleasant to look at. It's nauseating. We have this idea of rotting food being you know almost like we're cannibalizing human flesh. There's a human hand that lives inside the case with the meat. What Chris does is butcher's work as a button man for Tony and his operation. Um, but also, I saw that that bit of um, uh, the phallic symbol there, this fellatio business, as being kind of like, you know, this is the way in which the women service this uh, devil that they have sold themselves to. You know, it's like, all right, the men kill, they are the butchers, and then they uh, sleep with these men who are the butchers, that we're all engaged in this butchery business you know, that we are the purveyors of this and that we have sold our souls to, to butchery, you know. Mm, I love that. Yeah. The image of butchery. The only other connection that I made between Carmela and Adriana had to do actually with the image of the mob wife and how there's a parallel in two scenes back to back. One where Carmela wants Tony to lie, wants Tony to tell a half-truth, to tell a lie agreed upon about where her engagement ring came from. In the very next scene, Adriana is absolutely frank with Christopher, you stole this computer and the one that you gave to your cousin <laughs> yeah, at the yeah. wedding. Um, that's not the frankness Chris is looking for. Right. Chris is looking for a different kind of respect that Jordan alluded to earlier. Mm. But 
all of it, all this adds up to the imagery being so rich. And yes, it is a very disturbing dream yeah. to start off this episode that ends up having a lot of laughs. Speaking of frankness, this is the second episode in the series with Frank Renzulli as the writer, co-written with David Chase, so you know there's going to be a lot of humor, and he doesn't disappoint. Uh, I, I just want to throw this out there since we're really digging into Chris here. These shots we get of his script... Uh, just oh, they light up my life. <laughs> it, is, it just looks like the worst script I've ever seen. But of course, the script that Chris would write. Yeah, the character, simply beautiful girl, <laughs> and uh, I've got to be loyal to my capo! Exclamation point. Yeah, spelled L O Y L E. Um, <laughs> the note that I have... I've got to manage. Yes. Oh yeah, I managed to get the drop on him. The note mm. I have in my the what I have in my notes for that moment when it shows Chris hundred different Bud Light cans and several snubbed out cigarettes working on the script, laboring over this one line. I wrote in my notes, does anybody else think it's a bad sign that Christopher doesn't know how to spell loyal? <laughs> oh, <laughs> just <laughs> No accident, by the way. And <laughs> this line killed me just as a storyteller and a writer myself. Look, I'm sure that ultimately in writing there are no rules. Rules are there to be broken, and I'm sure there are writers out there who have worked this process this way and maybe had a good result. But to me, I really laughed hard at the line. I'm starting with the dialogue because, like, to me, it's like the last thing you should start with. You start with <laughs> character. You start with story. You start with a, an outline. Just, like, you start with dialogue. It's like he thought of a... Of a quote-unquote badass thing for a character to say sure. went well, off that that is part of christopher's whole personality who speaks before he thinks you know mm. just not having the prescience of thought to really come up with something better jesus christ yeah that's so good that is very good and sure and just as in my view in this episode cultural iconography is utilized for one's self-absorbed purposes christopher's understanding of movies is superficial and it's only made to serve his own purpose of wanting to become a player. Mm. It's not he doesn't have a story to tell, right? And he knows it. Getting into this, uh, getting into this discussion of gangster iconography and the legends we tell of gangsters. Uh, there's no more legendary gangster film, with the exception maybe I guess of The Godfather, uh, than Goodfellas. And Goodfellas is dripping all over this script. In particular, I mean, the most obvious call out to Goodfellas is the whole scene in the bakery. Uh, we would not be a good Sopranos podcast if we didn't mention the fact that Michael Imperioli's character in Goodfellas was Spider, and he was shot in the foot while slowly serving one of our gangster characters. And that's exactly what happens here. Mm -hmm. Chris's line, it happens. Uh, you know, it, it, it does happen. Such a good and, wink to the audience. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. In this bakery scene... Um, Oh, it's so good. I, I, I love the way they show the passage of time, the lines Chris is saying. He just he's sick of not being taken seriously. Brendan Fallone is the subject of the news article. Like, everything is just weighing on him. I want to acknowledge as well, uh, I think Michael Imperioli is an amazing actor. Five stars totally, but I have to believe the thing that put him over the edge for this role was that he did appear in Goodfellas. Like, he has staked a claim in gangster iconography himself. Mm. So when he shows up in Sopranos, you have to believe that the gangster fanboys, the Scorsese fanboys, must have been like, hey, it's the kid from Goodfellas. There's right. no way they didn't say that. Right. Know? So to acknowledge it's actually really smart on the part of David Chase. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, this bakery scene is really interesting. The shooting happens. Uh, we get our first appearance from a future cast member, this character Gino, played by Joe Ganascoli, who will come back to the show in a different role. I guess the casting directors must have liked his look or wanted to work with him more and thought the audience might not remember this small walk-on role. Right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he tells him, uh, you know, that, that very funny exchange, you know, I could go out, fuck your sister, come back, get at the front of the line. <laughs> But uh, yeah, any thoughts on the bakery scene, Chris's kind of journey through the middle of this episode here? I couldn't add much more than what you guys already laid out. The scene is very fun. It's very funny. I do think it's very funny that Gino, the Ganascoli character, does not want any trouble. Mm. He doesn't want any fuss. But a big part of this that's reversing that gaze now upon Christopher is that the character who shot Michael Imperioli's character, Spider, in the foot and then ultimately just blasted him to death for insulting him is Tommy, Joe Pesci's character, who's a loose cannon. Mm. That's the danger. That's why he's ultimately, spoiler alert for Goodfellas, he's put down. Oh, no, you spoiled Goodfellas for our listeners. 30 years later, <laughs> oh my I finally God, I'm did so it. sorry, listeners. I know that was, was fresh off the press. Yeah. And here, Chris is, from his own point of view, teaching this punk kid a lesson about respect when what he's actually doing is 
ratcheting up, I'd say, the Tommy level of dysfunction and blatant stupidity. Mm. This is a, this is a family business in Nutley that Christopher shoot, does a shooting in. Um, <laughs> the only thing dumber than this is contracting Georgie to come help him move a body in the middle of the day. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love that line, by the way, when they're digging up that body and... Uh, Georgie asks, is that him? And Chris's response is, that'd be some fucking coincidence if it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really great stuff there. So yeah, so Chris is going through this. Uh, he comes to the Bing. Uh, you know, He slams down the Shvuya Del, much to Paulie's chagrin. Again, a lot of humor. A lot of very funny beats in the midst of this. Let's talk about this conversation he has with Paulie, the main like arc conversation. What do we make of this scene? I think this is... Other than maybe a little bit in 46 long, this is our deepest look at Pauly, I think, so far. This is, uh, and uh, Pauly and Chris kind of establish a little bit of a relationship here. Uh, thoughts Paul, on, yeah, thoughts Paul, on the scene. Pauly Walnuts, the imminent survivor of, of the crew, the guy that seems like he's seen it all. I adore this character. He is probably the wrong person for Chris to be talking to in this moment, but it's also so right. Uh, Chris has all these concerns about his legend and about what kind of arc he has as a person and, and where he's kind of going in his life. And Pauly has a line, uh, I should have written it down, I apologize, I'm just going to paraphrase, where he says, uh, I always was afraid nothing good to me was ever going to happen. And then nothing ever did, and then I moved on. You <laughs> yeah. know? Um, I think that's great. I think that is, if you're not the top, if you're not the capo, you're not the head of the family, whatever, that's sort of the attitude you need to have when you're in this business because as soon as you get too much of a sense of your own self-importance, you start doing stupid fucking shit. You start shooting kids in the foot at the bakery. You start taking risks. You start saying too much in your movie script, stuff that you should not be doing. Paulie has a really wonderful sense of himself and his place in the world, and he's found something that Tony and Christopher haven't found. He's found a way to be content with his place in the world. So mm. in a way, he has not had to go to religion or therapy or any of the places that the other Sopranos are searching, academia, to find contentment for himself. He found it all on its own, and I think that's admirable. Yeah, great, great analysis there, uh, uh, Jordan, and I, I couldn't agree more. Paulie's a great character, and the irony of what you just said is looking at him from the outside. I mean, he's content where he is, and he's, you know, I grew up, I served in the Army, a couple, couple years in the Army, a couple more in the can, and here I am, a half a wise guy. You know, he's very content and kind of lackadaisical about his own accomplishments, but at the same time, looking at the Sopranos on the outside, the character of Paulie Walnuts is a mythical, legendary figure. Oh, yes. For reasons that we will get into, especially as the series goes on. But, you know, like, that is the image, that's the, uh, that, to me, he's the, another Goodfellas actor, by the way, he's the iconic-looking gangster, Paulie Walnuts. It doesn't get more gangster than Paulie Walnuts. And then Big Pussy, who we kind of do this interesting cut into, and uh, I love the button on this whole thing, where he's like, you know who had an arc? Noah. <laughs> Just totally busting his balls. Perhaps there's, there's something unspoken in Jordan's point. We know this isn't quite the right guy for Christopher to talk to because it cuts right to pussy in the middle of complete understanding. I'll tell you, the more you do, the better it gets. You'll sleep better. Don't worry about it. Um, and I can't mu add much to what the way you guys just deconstructed that wonderful scene with Christopher and Polly. But a theme that comes up for me throughout The Sopranos, this episode is the first big example of it. It's very hard to search for one's identity in an honest way if one is so self-absorbed. Christopher and Polly have this conversation comfortably sitting in the... Well, they got two women waiting in the car. Mm. They, they don't, they're like, whatever, they'll wait. They'll wait yeah. for us. And that, that's a big issue in this episode, that you can't get past yourself so you're not really going to understand very much. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. I want to put a pin in Christopher for a second. We're going to come back to him uh, before we end the episode. But let's uh, blend this conversation a little bit into the indictments going on. This this is sort sure. of... Uh, this is more the, Goodfellas looming large in the episode. Absolutely, yeah. This idea of the, that, you know, and we we felt, we talked about this at the end of uh, Pax Soprana. This idea that, you know, the Visigoths are coming. Uh, Rome, the peace of Rome is going to be disrupted. And, and uh, the feds are looming large here with the talk of this indictments. We... 
kind of start this storyline um, at, at uh, Larry Boy's daughter's wedding. So funny. Oh. Yeah, poor Melissa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is, there's a lot of, again, life and death stakes blended with dark humor. And what a, what a sim- cinematic sequence where you see the rumor that turns out to be true, the rumor of the federal indictments coming down, how quickly that wedding empties out. And it ends with the crying bride and Carmela trying to comfort her that, that more than three quarters of her wedding's guests have all left in that moment. Like pretty much, it's not clear if it's just before dinner or just after, but it's way too early for that many people to leave. I yeah. took a note that what you just said, Jordan, is the quintessential soprano shot. In the foreground, Carmela is comforting the young bride, doing the dutiful work of the mob wife in this community, it's going to be okay. And in the background, there's some old people and some kids sadly trying to keep the party going. <laughs> and that's the sequ- That's the shot, the single shot, that ends this sequence. Again, granddaddy of gangster movies, The Godfather, starts with a wedding. And that wedding is a big, drawn-out affair oh, yes. in a rustic backyard compound in Lo- on Long Island. One of the main characters gets laid at the wedding. It's a beautiful affair. This wedding sucks. It's at this cheap-looking venue, which even if it were more the Goodfellas wedding could still be fun. From the minute Livia says that line to Larry, yeah. the wedding is a downhill shit show. <laughs> Have you still, are you still seeing your other women, Lorenzo? Then the rumors are running around, as are moving around, as Jordan said. Yeah. Uh, the, Christopher doesn't even wrap his gift Pussy has to take back part of the money. The wedding just goes to shit. Um, and I just want, I forget actually the name, another Goodfellas actor, the guy who plays Larry Boy Barisi. He does this bit in this episode. It's not a line, but when Livia says that line, are you still seeing your other women, Lorenzo? Larry Boy does this gesture to Tony as if to say, what the fuck? My wife is standing right here. And Tony, we don't often see Tony like this. He's very apologetic. Oh, my mother, you know. Um, but Larry, I just want to give a shout out to that Larry Boy actor doing very Italian uh, physical hand gestures. Oh, yeah. No, he's great. We, we've talked about this at length, how these capo characters are, like, right off the streets. They're perfect. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, interesting moment. The Capos get together uh, with Tony and Junior, basically on the dance floor. I love how that shot, too. Just that circular it's shot. a beautiful it, yeah. sequence. Does Junior know he's not the boss? Well, they're standing in a circle, and they're all asking Tony what to do, and Junior's rather indignant. I just told you what to do. Yeah. You know, but they, they're waiting for Tony's answer, and Tony's answer is what ends that uh, yeah. circle. Yeah. He, he, he has to give some kind of answer. To, well, whether Junior knows it or not, the other bosses know. Right. And so Junior's the one doing the talking, and they are thinking in their heads, like, well, okay, but is Tony, is this Tony's plan? Should somebody ask? Uh, what's the deal? And somebody actually has the audacity to, I think it's Ray, uh, asks Tony what he thinks, and Junior, yeah, he gets very upset and indignant. But very important little moment here in the progression of the Junior-Tony storyline, because uh, it's becoming probably more clear to Junior at this point that uh, there's some undermining going on, you know? And Tony's the one that orders the spring cleaning. He's the one that launches this whole montage of people stashing their money in their guns and Pussy barbecuing his books in his backyard. Yeah, which, by the way, shame on Pussy for keeping fucking books. Are you out of your mind? But anyway, (laughs) didn't he learn from, uh, what's his name in Casino, that character? uh, Piscano. The the Kansas City uh, bookkeeper, yeah. yeah. I keep fucking books. I keep records. Every fucking nickel goes down in these books. (laughs) What are you keeping records for, Adi? But uh, you're gonna pay taxes. <laughs> uh, great shit. Um, but uh, yeah, no. It, it, and Tony is the one. And again, Junior, another very telling line of the power dynamic here. Tony gives the order. He was thinking we should all do some spring cleaning. And Junior says, "Well, that was my next comment." Sit trying to save face. The image project the imagery, even though we know that's not what's actually going on. Well, and there's only one other beat in this entire episode with Junior, if I recall mm-hmm. correctly. But it's the one where Livia tells him what she knows about. Tony, that he's mm. seeing a psychiatrist, that combined with what you guys have just pulled apart in this scene is not a whole lot in terms of screen time. It's plenty to point us toward trouble. Oh, yeah. And we're going to get deeper moment. into that. It, it, it's, it's sort of, I don't want to say an afterthought. It's not attached to one of the major plots of this episode as its own cinematic piece, but that moment where Livia tells Junior about the psychiatrist is maybe one of the most crucial moments in the entire season. It's huge. Sure, and and the writers wisely have Junior repeat that, I don't know, five or six times in that scene. Mm-hmm. A psychiatrist? What are you, a broken record? Yeah. A psychiatrist? <laughs> he, can't, he can't believe it. Yeah, it's just not... Now, it's not just a generational thing, it's a gangster thing as well. Like, 
Somebody's talking too much. That's never a good thing in this culture, talking. We'll get more into that in the next uh, episode. But, yeah, and, uh, of course, again, I just love the way they balance this heavy, dark stuff amidst that ridiculous comedian <laughs> that's oh, yeah. playing the old folks' home. It's so fucking funny. Don't spend it all in one place, folks. <laughs> It's another quintessential uh, soprano shot to me that begins that scene. There's an old woman on a walker. She has to be careful about the steps that she takes. She's an old woman. And you see her leaving, not, shaking her head, nope, not for me. Can't sit through this material. <laughs> great, great scene. So great. So getting back to the indictments, we then get this interesting uh, stuff with Tony at home. He's doing his own spring cleaning. We get that very interesting scene with Hay and Carmela where she's kind of like, you know, up oh, here we go. You know, we've been through, we get the sense this has happened. We've been through this before. This is something that happens every so often. And Meadow is watching this all. Always. Yeah. Yep. Meadow, uh, there are, we'll talk about the, at the end of when we finish season one, we'll deconstruct the whole season kind of at, at once, but there's a lot of moments this season of meadow looking from the upstairs like the way the house is set up is there's a lot of upstairs room to kind of look down on what's happening in the house i just got to chill up my spine but yeah it's it's what life must be like for that girl but also um we are now in a moment with the soprano children where they they understand what the deal is so there's not a lot of quibbling between them when meadow says you know aj boot your computer yeah. Uh, you don't want them to see all the porn that's on there. And Meadow is totally right. When the feds ultimately do knock on their door, they take her computer. Yeah. Maybe they also perhaps take AJ's. We don't know. I think they do because he says he wants all his programs still on there, yeah. all his games and things. Yep. Um, so she was she was right. Uh, I thought this was actually as awful as it is to have your home raided by the feds. It was kind of a unifying moment for the family yeah. because they all kind of give the fuck you to the feds. Absolutely. You know, the kids dig in a little bit too. And I was like, this is nice to see actually. Yeah, I agree. And I wish the feds would arrest that fly in AJ's room. Every episode he's trying to kill this fly. Have you noticed? He <laughs> no, does it in, I didn't. Uh, no, in the You're scene, right, I forgot, when, when, I forgot. Remember yeah. it, which episode was it? With Jeremy P. Acosta. I think it's Meadowlands where his shirt was ripped. That sounds and, right. And Carmela comes in and he's trying to hit the fly with his baseball glove. Oh my glove. God, you're right. Oh, he's, what is that? Fucking, that? That must be a thing. That fucking fly in his room every time we come to him in season one. It's just it's a funny little ongoing thing. But uh, yeah, let's talk about the Fets for a second because this is a, another great first appearance here. A lot of firsts in season one. That's what firsts are made of. We have Agent Harris coming to the uh, house. This is the first we see of this character. Um, and Agent Grasso. And they are... Uh, let, let's talk about uh, Tony's first interactions with the FBI. I was very entertained by it. At, like you said, it was nice to kind of see the family... Um, again, more good fellas. I, 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 w I couldn't help but be reminded of the scene where uh, Lorraine Bracco is narrating in Goodfellas about how uh, the other wives would react. Like, hey, she would spit on her own floor. I never understood that. And kind of like <laughs> the idea of like how you respond to this very normal part of mob life where the feds just show sure. up and raid your house. It's part of, as Peter Schaefer would call it, the usual unusual. You know, part of how you earn cred as a gangster is just how much attitude you can give back to the feds. Any one of us, feds raided our house, I'd be shitting on the floor. They'd, I'd be inconsolable. But for them, this whole family, they're like, ah, fuck you, you dropped this plate, how dare you? They're apologizing to her for breaking the dish, going into the refrigerator. You know, if you forgot lunch at home, you should have brought something, whatever. You know, they're really razzing these yeah. guys, and it's, it's impressive, and I thought deeply funny. Yeah, very funny. It's also not expected. If you were working within a Goodfellas framework, it's a moment of rising tension. Again, if the feds are that close and they're looking through your stuff. But two things. One, the feds don't live up to those expectations. Agent Harris knocks on the back door. What are you doing in my yard? We don't feel the need to traumatize children. Oh, so they're just going to walk around. And then, as Jordan said, they tell them off. The one guy breaks the bowl. Tony jokes with him. If you get your lunchbox, pal, why don't you just ask? Yeah. It's not precisely what you'd expect not to mention tony has expertly sidestepped them mm. he hid guns and money that he can't account for at his mother's place um in spite of livia's protestation that he can't take it in stride mm. he's more clever he's cleverer than she can see in that moment and the feds moving in in this episode to me brings up identity and image as tony sidesteps at least immediate intrusion into his life in a number of different ways, this first scene with Carmela is very interesting, and it's just a jumping-off point. He's asking her for the jewelry, and she says, I'm not giving you my engagement ring. It's not stolen. Pregnant pause. Is it? Mm. Tony says, no. 
what do you think I am? There's the identity question. And I guess the, the, you don't see anything after that. That what do you think I am question, that just hangs in the air and we move, on, we move on to something else. I suppose the explanation would be, no, the engagement ring isn't stolen. I bought your engagement ring with money I made from thievery and graft. Yeah. What do you think I am? <laughs> yeah. And so our identities as they relate to other people and how other people define us has to be very carefully controlled. Mm. At the beginning of this episode, just I assume being the polite Italian guy, Larry calls Livia darling. She says, I am nobody's darling. Mm. And how are you defined by other people, I think is a big question here. So. Oh, really good pickup, Paul. Yeah, nice. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about Melfi here because it bleeds into this FB, the, the Melfi storyline, which we haven't even touched yet, bleeds a little bit into this federal indictment storyline. Tony tells her... She, well, first of all, the first we see of Melfi in the episode, I believe, is her watching the news with kind of a tabloid interest. Yeah, it's during the Channel 6 montage where we see multiple people Characters. watching yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. the news. She's yeah. that the, Very this, well done. Yeah, extremely well done sequence. And um, she's watching it, and obviously we understand her interest in it. And the next scene we see her, there are going to be multiple moments like this in the series where Melfi knows something that Tony isn't telling her. And... He mentions, you know, hey, I may be, uh, I may just not, sh- I may just stop showing up for one day. You know, just assume I'm on vacation and wait to be contacted is what she's told. And then the next scene, we talked a little bit in the, uh, one of the previous, I think in uh, episode six, Pax Soprana, about Tony's transactional relationship with women. And that really comes to play here when Tony literally throws money at her when she charges him for the missed session. Yeah, calls her a call girl. Yeah. yeah. Which is rough. I understand how he feels that way there is something to that in the therapeutic relationship because you're telling this person some very personal stuff and then at the end of the hour it's just like all right well here's your money it does feel i understand the need for therapy and most people i think you know we were talking about this a little bit before we recorded like most people should probably be in therapy if they can but like i get that and tony kind of felt uh, betrayed here but he in doing so he showed a, an ugly side of himself to Melfi. Any thoughts on this? This storyline I found rich in ways that I hadn't before. One yeah. is the way that it's formatted. As you said, it starts with Melfi seeing the news on TV. Usually therapy scenes and the sequences of Sopranos episodes work in basically the opposite direction. Episodes start with Tony having some issue either in his private or gangster life, takes it into therapy, and then brings that out into the world. Here, we don't see any therapy for the first half, and it's mostly, it's more from Melfi's perspective. I think it's her therapy, in a way. Instead, the way this operates is that the gangster life has become too public, and Melfi sees some of it. She wrestles with it, I think is frustrated with Tony, and that affects their therapy session. It almost works in reverse. If you don't mind, I'd like to pose a question to you. Please. Oh, I love it. After that sequence where... Presumably she has watched the news about these indictments and put together some things about Tony. It's on her mind. Then she and her family have dinner. Her ex-husband, her son, her parents. Her mother fucks up. She makes the Sunday gravy. It's too good. And it starts them talking. The son says, Ginzo, I don't like that word. I have a patient. You wouldn't want to say that in front of him. Then, again, cultural iconography. Somebody goes right to gangster. And they start asking her about it. And Melfi says the following... Uh, I shouldn't have mentioned it. Can we change the subject? A little chip in her voice. Well, when we talked about Pax Soprana, Tony said, what you're feeling is not what you're feeling. And what you're not feeling is your real agenda. My question to you is, are we on terra firma to cross-examine Jennifer here and say, if you shouldn't have mentioned it, then why did you? Mm. Are you struggling with this question Mm. of this patient? I think, as we mentioned in a previous episode, uh, Tony looms large in Melfi's life. And when she is back to being just Jennifer and she's not Dr. Melfi in the moment, when she's vulnerable and she's with her family, I think she absolutely, Paul, needs an outlet to talk about this thing that has kind of consumed her a bit. We kind of mentioned that Jennifer Melfi doesn't have a lot going on in life. We didn't know a lot about her family originally. This is the first episode where we see a little bit more of that between Jason, her obnoxious son who goes to Bard, and her ex-husband, her parents, her whole family situation. Other than that, all we know about her is that she mostly works and she is sort of dating this guy, Randall, probably not so much anymore. Um, The problem being that Tony is such an interesting patient 
that we have to imagine in the life of the show that Jennifer really thinks about him a lot. And she brings it up, I think, in the worst place you could bring it up. You do not want to bring this home to your family, your ex-husband, your parents, your child is in the room. Now Tony is looming in everyone's lives, and it's going to be a problem as we see through the rest of this episode. Yeah. Wow, very well said. Uh, this dinner scene is great. I love the, uh, again, we t- you know, great movies, great movies to eat pizza by. They're talking about <laughs> the iconography of the gangster. And they have an interesting conversation. And I think on some level, this is David Chase and the show creators kind of answering the criticism before they get it of, like, depictions of Italian-Americans in culture. So in, I find this a little, not in a negative way, I find this a little bit meta in in some regards. Is like this is kind of like what you know the show's response to this dialogue about Italian American imagery and in, in, in film and culture. But it's also a very interesting journey for Melfi to go on here, and I want to put a pin on this for a much later date because we're not giving spoilers out. But Richard says something very poignant to her in the scene. It's one of the big lines of the episode to me. Uh, when they're kind of on that property and they're having this conversation about Tony and they're busting each other's balls and, you know, Freud by numbers and <laughs> take one of your Colleen's on a cruise. It's yeah, a fun... the, the Italian boys and the Irish girls, which is totally a true That's thing. A very a thing that happens. Thing. Yes. Guilty. <laughs> yeah, guilty as well. Um, and uh, he, she, he says to her, you know, eventually you're going to get beyond psychotherapy with its cheesy moral relativism. You're going to get to good and evil and he's evil. He says earlier in the dinner scene, you know you can't treat sociopaths. So Melfi is in this position where she has to justify her treatment of this guy at mm-hmm. this point. And any thoughts on this thread and this idea of Italian-American iconography and, and how it how this character of Richard is laying it out to Melfi? What do we think of this? That's a really rich question, as Paul's question was very rich uh, as well. Um, I would say that I love that the show has brought up kind of this sub-theme of the legitimate Italian-American and how they have been belied by the legend of the gangster. Mm. You know, it's like you can't escape that. And they throw out some numbers that kind of sounded like bullshit, but it was like, you know, 5,000 members of organized crime versus, you know, however many it was, 20 million Italian-Americans. We the 20 million. We the 20 million. Uh, I don't know if that number was accurate. It didn't seem like it was. Perhaps it was. Yeah, I haven't done any research on this. I probably should have them on a podcast. But, um... (laughs) The show does a really nice job of giving us these characters that are not in the mob, but yet the mob has come to infiltrate all of their lives. Jennifer Melfi is not in the mob. The mob infiltrates her life. Artie Bucco's not in the mob. The mob infiltrates Artie Bucco's life. It's like if your life touches these people at all, it becomes diseased or changed in some way. Mm. I don't know. Paul? That's a really good point. Uh, uh, And you used the phrase looming large, which is such an image for Tony physically in terms of his presence in terms of the power of the character something uh, jordan said in an episode or two ago was that tony is death come knocking i mean he, you know he is, if yeah. he wants to kill you or beat you you're going to get killed or beaten so this idea of him looming large is well, effective in more ways than just beating and killing speaking of which we've talked about the characters being more passive aggressive than other characters on tv I want to propose that Melfi setting a boundary and saying you have to pay for a missed session is a passive-aggressive response of her trying to own that area, not saying I can't... She doesn't walk into the session saying, I can't treat you, you're a sociopath. She walks in and kind of meekly tries to lay something down. And Tony's huge, hostile, looming reaction Mm. kind of underlines what Richard said. In that quote. So is Richard right here? That's an interesting question. I think he's right in some ways and wrong in others, as Sopranos characters usually are. Mm. And this is another thing. Richard is, in effect, offended by the iconography that Tony embodies. Yeah. He, it's, he refers to it as a dark shadow over We the 20 Million. Both of them get pushback from their wise-ass kids <laughs> during these dinner scenes on their bullshit, frankly. And I think... As different as they are, they couldn't be more different night and day. I don't know how many Colleen's Tony has, but I think the two guys are similar in a lot of ways. Tony and Richard? Yes. Mm. I think that, in essence, what Richard's problem is, from Melfi's psychological deconstructive perspective, is that he has so low self-esteem that he has so little identity that he is confident in that... The gangster imagery 
overwhelms him and he's offended by it. Tony, much thicker skin, takes in the cultural iconography with no respect for what it is or what it means, only that it serves his purpose. Mm. That's what I think the connection is between That's the two That's interesting, because I wrote uh, regarding that dinner scene back at house at Casa Soprano, uh, Tony's putting on a show here. This is theater, with all these people he's naming. And um, the one genuine moment from Tony in the scene is when Meadow challenges him on the origins of the mafia, and then his little connection with Carmilla at the end, the Francis Albert, which I want to come back to in a second. But The rest of it is Joe Colombo starting the... Italian anti-deaf deal. Which is true, by the way. Uh, Joe Colombo started the Anti-Italian Defamation League. Chris, to answer your question, I think, unfortunately, Richard is right. Mm. Um, but no one watching the show wants him to be. Sure. None of us want Melfi to stop treating Tony because we want to get to the bottom of this. It's the whole compelling center of the of the show. Um, if I were Richard, I'd be giving her the same advice. But also, Richard is an unlikable character. Also, he's the ex-husband. Also, he's... <laughs> kind of our enemy in these scenes we want melfi to defend her position that she wants to treat tony in the hopes that he will heal from himself uh i love the line she gives later in the family therapy like when did we get so we meaning psychiatrists get so afraid to get our hands dirty mm. and maybe it isn't maybe it is a sisyphean task to treat tony soprano but i in this moment with the knowledge we have in the series thus far i admire melfi's courage here to not only treat tony but to stand behind it and to say, fuck your insecurity about Italian-American imagery and, and media. Like, I'm doing this because sure. it needs to be done. Also, uh, just more air taken out of the therapy balloon when we see what Melfi's family therapist is like. Sam is a piece of shit. That guy sucks. Uh, you know, Jason, how's Bard? Well, they move me into a smoke-free dorm. How does that make you feel? Oh, my God. You know, like, just the worst possible therapist. I thought an, an interesting connection I made with this therapist... Uh, <laughs> Oh, God, this is a very funny scene. But interesting, talking about iconography and, like, I, 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 I thought there was a very fun, deliberate juxtaposition here of, like, Chris and Tony in this episode having to be a tough guy despite their reality. And that's, like, kind of the Italian stereotype is the the guy who's holding in his feelings, mother issues, they, that line, like, Italian-American seeing a shrink. Let me guess, mother issues. Yep. <laughs> um, and this idea that, like, Tony and Chris are both hurting but have to put up this macho front. And you have this therapist who talks about uh, this Buckhalter guy, this uh, Jewish gangster. And the Jewish stereotype, if I may, is, like, this kind of weak, neurotic, and he's, like, looking up to this guy, like, those are some tough Jews. Right. And it's like kind of the opposite dynamic where he is like, you know, projecting this toughness, uh, you know. Sure. Listen, to put us in the role of the Bucos or the, you know, Melfi's family in this moment, I mean, who are our heroes? Our cultural heroes are gangsters. That's mm. who the Italian-Americans have. So there is something sort of admirable about them, but it's it's really creates a dissonance. Another element of a different, I guess, subgroup or race group that's brought up just a couple of times, it's interesting that most of the main characters are Italian. The image of the federal indictments, as Jordan mentioned, giving it back to the FBI guys. Italians think they're being treated unfairly. Livia has a throwaway line about the shanty Irish in this episode that nobody questions. You can shit on as many Irish people as you want. So again, these aren't principles or values that they hold universally. They're principles that they utilize to protect themselves. We're coming up on the end here. Uh, one little fun connection I mentioned uh, earlier is um, Francis Albert, for those of you who may not know, uh, is the real name of Frank Sinatra, that little moment that Tony and Carmela share there. Uh, you know, kind of have that sweet smile. And then the episode ends with the song Frank Sinatra by the band Cake, which I love. I love that whole last scene where Chris is laying in bed and then gets the call from his mother and he just runs out. And I've never been listed as a potential gangster, but I have actually shamefully in the past mostly as a teenager done what chris has done when i had some kind of write-up in the paper it's like you open that paper machine and it's like there's nothing stopping me from grabbing every one of these newspapers and of course <laughs> it is a pretty fitting celebration of being noted as a legitimate gangster yeah just steal all the papers <laughs> but i feel for chris here too because it's like uh i don't know while his movie pursuits are very clearly misguided and maybe just maybe he's not cut out for a writing job. You know, I uh, there's a sickening feeling I get seeing his jubilation at being listed in the paper. It's like, you know, he's not in there with good company. 
And this is not the direction Chris should be going into either. We see his pain in that scene in the car with Tony, and he's doing what the gangsters do, and that's choosing to ignore it, what's really going on, and go for go for the legend. Yeah, I mean, we, we titled our episode today Cowboy-itis as kind of this disease that maybe Christopher has. He has a line in the episode where he, he talks about feeling like he has cancer, you know, mm. like Jackie did, like there's something physically wrong with him, which is, of course, the affect from what he's experiencing as, as depression, uh, not really being where he, he wants to be. When we talk about gangsters and cowboys, when we talk about these American legend characters, these characters often don't come to a good end. So he's trying to find his way into his own story, and I don't think he cares by what means he gets there. And we're going to see Chris really struggle with that for the rest of the series. Yeah, very well said. Any final thoughts on The Legend of Tennessee Moltisanti? Well, Tennessee Williams and Ernest Hemingway are both referenced in this episode. They didn't come to good ends either. And for me, a key aspect of this episode is executed, as you pointed out, Chris, in that car scene. It's a strange scene. It's very funny. Speaking of Tony's cruelty and possible evil, one of my favorite lines from him in this whole season is, you know what? I wipe my ass with your feelings. <laughs> How does a human being think of that? That's an amazing line. <laughs> and it's another thing, two things happening at once. Complexity. It's not that Tony and Chris don't connect at all. I think they connect in a pretty profound way. Tony really empathizing with Chris's feelings of depression and feeling lost, but the note that I took was even in their camaraderie. Even their camaraderie is supported by lies and obfuscation. And that, in this pretty funny episode, gave me kind of a chilling mm. feeling. Mm. I have a far less eloquent final thought. When the feds are raiding Tony's house, um, he hears that one of the feds' last name is, is Grasso, which is unmistakably an Italian name. And this horrible look crosses Tony's face where he acknowledges, oh, traitor. Mm. And he says to this traitor, Ti faccio il culo cosi, which literally means I'm, I'm going to fuck you in the ass. Okay? <laughs> and the guy's response is, your ass! And he, he just comes for him. But I think that puts a nice little uh, button in the whole argument of, like, the legitimate Italian-American versus the illegitimate Italian-American experience that the gangsters are kind of the dominant presence, and you're kind of supposed to give them your loyalty. You're supposed to be helping them. You're not supposed to be working for the feds by turning over your own people. You must be loyal to your capo. Right. <laughs> uh, so that's that's that was something that I took away from the episode as being an interesting moment because, you know, we, we have seen Tony interact with other legitimate... Italians before, not just Dr. Melfi, how about, you know, Pia Costa's father and, and other people, and he, he, Buco, uh, he wants to bring these people into his life, but every time he does this, he must be the dominant person in the relationship, right? I'm going to fuck you in the ass. You always know how you're going to get it from Tony Soprano. Mm. Very interesting. Well, this has been awesome. Guys, great episode. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we'll see you next time for Boca. Get those mouths ready, folks. If you like The Sopranos Podcast, please follow us on social media at The Sopranos Podcast on Facebook, Sopranos Podcast on Twitter, and The Sopranos Podcast on Instagram. To email us, hit us up at thesopranospodcast at gmail.com. Please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave us a five star review. If you don't want to leave a five star review, don't leave any review. Thank you for listening to The Sopranos Podcast.